Hello and welcome to the Over the Farmgate podcast brought to you by Farmers Guardian and the CLA. Where your host for this week is me, Olivia Midgley. And me, Farmers Guardian editor, Ben Briggs. We'll bring you a new episode of Over the Farmgate every Tuesday. Be sure to subscribe through all your favourite podcast platforms, whether that's Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts or Acast, to ensure that you keep notified of all the new episodes. Coming up this week, well, it's an issue that is not going anywhere anytime soon. We're speaking to growers about the challenges they're facing with recruitment and hearing about the extraordinary journeys some workers are taking to get here. Plus, we hear from a young farmer who's launched her own social media campaign to bang the drum for British produce and highlight the issues being faced across all agricultural sectors, especially in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, to talk more about seasonal workers and the issues that growers are facing, we've got Jez Fredenberg here, who's been chatting to a number of growers, haven't you, Jez, about, about the recruitment process and what have they been telling you? Yeah, so it's basically a lot of extra work and quite a lot of stress for them at the moment. The farmers that I spoke to, they've had hundreds of applications from Brits. One even had uh, an application from somebody in Kathmandu. But they've been a complete mixture of people applying, but mostly people who have been made obviously unemployed by the pandemic or they're self-employed people or they're students. So uh, farmers have been telling me they've been having a lot of chefs applying plasterers laborers cameramen and women so a huge range of people and a big challenge is to make sure that all those people who are very different can work together in a team but one of the main things that they've been saying is that even though they've had all these hundreds of applications when it actually comes to getting people employed and starting to pick a lot of people are shedded through the process. So people either don't respond to emails or they come for a session and then they get offered a job and they don't show up. Or once they've learned more about what's involved, they're then not interested. So I think that's a real challenge. And another thing that they're very concerned about is that when they actually get these people onto the farms, obviously they're completely unskilled in terms of picking. They're completely fresh. And the people who would normally be training those people and skilling them up are not there often because those are often Eastern European workers who build up that skill over many, many seasons of coming back to the same farms, maybe 10 years or more at a time. So there's a real challenge there in terms of getting the right number of people training them and then of course dealing with the safety aspects of all of this so making sure that people when they come and they're, they're working in a group that they're keeping apart and you know everyone's remaining safe so it's yeah there's a lot of challenges like you just say there's a huge amount of challenges that that poses doesn't it and and just the sheer fact that I think that really highlights how not only are these you know as you say the a lot of Eastern European workers who are coming over not only are they highly valued as part of the workforce but also it's that training element isn't it and that you know now growers themselves are having to that's another thing that they're going to have to take on themselves I mean it's that and then plus the whole you know whittling down those hundreds of applications I mean that is an enormous 
enormous amount of work, isn't it? And added to the workload. I was chatting to someone from Safety Revolution earlier, and, and he was saying that the whole health and safety element of this is huge because a lot of farmers are, are concerned, really, about how they can not only protect themselves, but also the workforce. So there's, there's huge challenges there, isn't there, in, in how farmers are really going to have to adapt to this crisis. Yeah, it's massive. And of course, if you're working, you know, one of the farmers I spoke to he said, you know, picking is not like it used to be, obviously. And you don't go off just with a basket as an individual into the rows and pick on your own. You're working in a team. So you're working often in a group behind a moving piece of machinery and, and picking like that. So it's going to be very challenging if perhaps like one worker gets ill, then what happens to the whole team, you know, so... There's a lot of things going on there. But I think the, you know, one of the other things that really came out from talking to people was the dedication of their seasonal staff who come year after year. So James Porter, for example, a soft fruit farmer in Angus, I spoke to him and we'll hear from him in a minute. And he said, you know, all his workers had already booked their flights. They've been contracted since January to do this. So, you know, they're really disappointed they can't get over. Mark Bauer, another farmer I spoke to, he's actually operations manager of Wilmar, which is a really big fresh produce company. Mark actually runs Wilmore's herb business and he's actually managed to get most of the workers that he would normally get from Eastern European countries over. But through sheer dedication from them, a lot of his guys come from Poland and they had their flights cancelled. They were already booked on these flights. They had their flights cancelled. So they tried to look at other ways of getting to the UK. So they looked at trains and that wasn't going to be possible. They looked at buses and there were then restrictions in place of how many people you could have a vehicle and that kind of thing. So they decided to drive. So a group of them got together and drove from Poland and they got to the German border and found that that was closed. So they then had to drive all the way around Germany to then come to the UK. So, I mean, I haven't actually looked at how far that is, but obviously it's a really, really long way. And the second group then also coming from Poland, had to make that journey as well. And they actually managed to get through Germany. So they drove through Germany to the UK. But just huge dedication of all these people. But of course, now Mark has this issue of he's had lots of people arriving from around Europe. And so he's now got, again, the safety challenge. We'll go back to that. He's having to create, you know, on the farm, two separate areas for people to live because he already had workers who were there, you know, throughout the year who were living on site and had been doing the sort of winter work. So these new people that come in, he's had to create a separate site for them and they're going to be working completely separately to the, the first group for a whole two weeks and just, you know, making sure that they're safe. He's having to do things like normally they would go together on a, a farm bus to the supermarket, but they're having to make sure that only one person goes at a time. And so there's lots of different things to be thinking about, I think. You're still ploughing on, and so are we. Get Farmer's Guardian delivered directly to your door every week and access the latest news from the world of agriculture 24-7 through fginsight.com. Simply subscribe to Farmer's Guardian. Check out our latest deals at fginsight.com slash subscriptions today. 
As we head into the summer and peak picking season, more than 30,000 Brits have applied to pick fruit and veg on farms and help fill the gap of 70,000 seasonal workers from overseas. But not since the end of World War II have we really picked our own food. So how is this all shaken out on farm? First, I headed, virtually of course, to Scotland, which produces 25% of the UK's soft fruit. I caught up with James Porter in Angus. James grows strawberries, raspberries, blackberries and blueberries, is chair of NFU Scotland's Horticulture Committee and helps run Angus Growers, a producer organisation growing 12,500 tonnes of soft fruit a year. It's very warm and sunny up here. There's a bit of a cold breeze off the sea, but um, I picked my first red berries yesterday, so everything's looking great, actually. Oh, that sounds lovely. That sounds really, really nice. So, James, you are horticulture chair at NFU Scotland. I'm just wondering what's happening on the grounds right now in terms of how members are managing to line labour up, given the circumstances? I guess a month ago now that we started our, our webpage on NFU Scotland and also on Angus Grow's webpage, and that was a response to coronavirus and worrying about not being able to get workers over. So, yeah, it's it's been a, a huge response in that situation, but we're very conscious there's still a long way to go in terms of getting workers lined up on, on such a short period of time. You know, normally we spend months preparing for these sort of things and we're having to condense everything into a very short space of time. So, James, what is the what is at risk then if, like you say, we don't have those people in the summer months when, when picking is, is really meant to be underway? Well, all the broccoli and cauliflower and other field veg, plus all the berries that are grown in the UK are sold within the UK in the summer months. We need that workforce to pick it. So I think particularly at a time like this, when people aren't able to move around so much and not taking as much exercise, perhaps, it's really important that we can ensure they have a reliable source of fresh fruit and veg. I think with the instability abroad at the moment as well, we can't rely on bringing that in from abroad. So I think it's particularly important now to make sure that we get these crops harvested, Jez. I know on your own farm, you obviously have a lot of seasonal workers normally coming from overseas. Have they been able to get to you, any of them? Before things locked down, we normally we have kind of core of about five ten percent of our total. They come over early to start preparing tunnels and doing repairs and planting and husbandry jobs and things like that. So they were already here. So I guess we've we you know we have staff of about roughly thirty seasonal workers on the farm at the moment, and they've been here since you know since sort of. Uh, February. That's our sort of the, the numbers we have. And we've also started a few uh, local workers as well. Because I understand that you've had, was it 300 applicants? Yeah, yeah. So out of those 300, when we went back to them, around 76 turned out to be in the right location or able to work for a decent length of time. Uh, or, you know, or just that we're able to do the job. So, yeah, there's been quite a lot of initial applicants, but 
when you go back to them a lot don't respond and so on so you know that's fully expected um, people think about you know get a bit more information about the job and they might think it's not for them also people who perhaps were thinking they might be able to work and then they were taken back off furlough to do other jobs or so on so yeah we're, we're we've got 76 that we've given firm job offers to and when we did that we had 64 responses so we'll see how we get on with those and we're still planning to keep recruiting right up into you know into june our whole farm we need 250 at peak so got a long way to go and uh, it's obviously a huge concern that um you know they're all completely new to this job which is quite complicated I mean, that's a, a major issue, isn't it? The skill aspect of it. Quite a lot of your, your normal workers would be, they'd be coming back, wouldn't they? So they already have those skills. What are those skills that you're going to have to now teach all these new people? Well, um, I guess it depends on the job. But if you think, imagine pickings are, are obviously picking fruit is our, uh, the biggest job. You need to be quite dexterous with your hands and keep those hands moving and picking and selecting the right fruit. But it's a bit more complicated than that because you need to be able to do it at sort of a decent speed all day long, day in, day out. So it takes a certain mindset to kind of get focused on that. And um, I'm sure there there are people locally that will be able to do that, but... It's definitely not for everyone. I mean, I know, for instance, I I was sent out picking berries as a little boy all my childhood, and uh, I was utterly useless. (laughs) So I have a lot of sympathy for people who can't get themselves into that mindset. So, yeah, it is is complicated, and it's also particularly complicated, of course, because we've got COVID-19, and... We've spent a huge. I've got. We've got a guy called Jan Redpath at Angus Soft Fruits who's been writing a protocol for how we separate people, how we all our procedures all around the packing, picking fruit, and making sure our workers are safe. He's done nothing but that for over a month, and you know it's 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 hugely challenging to do that with an untrained workforce and try and do all of these things and get it all right and make, you know, a lot of things have to fall into place. And it's extremely challenging, Jess. yeah. It sounds like an enormous amount of extra work, like you say, with, with dealing with the COVID, making sure that everyone's safe, but then recruiting everybody, training them. I mean, clearly there is, you know, not, this has never happened before on this scale. And clearly there is a very big need and desire for jobs right now wherever people are coming from and wherever they are so do you feel like there's a balance to be struck between employing local people and people from abroad or how does that sort of sit with you yeah i do i think you're right um we you know i think because of the the circumstances and that there are people there who are out of work now who, you know, they they might not be able to get work again for the rest of the year. I think we definitely, it's it's incumbent on us to make an effort to try and attract them into the industry, perhaps university students as well. All the growers that I speak to are definitely, they get that and they, they really want to make an effort to do that. But they also don't want to see their businesses go under, if if at all possible. 
And in order to ensure that we have some kind of a productive situation, we can still produce efficiently, we definitely need to still be able to bring people over in a safe way. I think it's quite responsible to do that, to have a balance of having a local workforce that you can try and bring on and that perhaps it's something for the future as well, um, but also bring in trained people who, by the way, are already contracted since January. You know, they have a living to make as well, and um, they, they've been coming back year after year, most of them. They'll be able to train up the ones that, that we're taking on new. They'll be able to keep us a productive level. And also, I guess as well, I'm quite worried that we get halfway through the season and restrictions start to lift a bit and people start to go back to their old jobs and we could be left blowing in the wind if we don't have a core workforce there that we, we can rely on, we can be absolutely sure we're still going to have. Yeah, definitely. There's a lot to think about, isn't there? A lot to fall into place. I mean, do you feel that policymakers and government understand this? Like, do you think they fully understand? Or what would you like them to really do to support? Well, yeah, you know, up here with Scottish government, we're in constant communication with them. And uh, I've spoken to one Minister of Government, one MP and one MSP in the last 10 days, I guess, about it. And they all completely understand the situation because I've told them what it is. <laughs> but they, I think they get it as well. You know, they recognise that we are making an effort, but that we are going, you know, to, to employ locally, but that we do need to, to um, still bring people over. So I, I guess... It's important that we communicate and that they understand our reasons for doing these things. All the ones that I've spoken to, they definitely understand what the situation is because we're keeping them totally informed with it. And also in terms of safety, we're discussing our protocols and our procedures with them on a weekly basis. There's a lot of interaction there between government and industry to make sure that we have the right structure in place going forward. At least that's good in its in itself. Okay, well let's yeah, let's hope that support support and understanding continues. James, thank you very much. I know you're extremely busy with all this at the moment, so I'll let you let you get back to your farm. <laughs> thanks, Jez. Nice speaking to you. <laughs> you too, thanks. <laughs> That was James Porter there in Angus. As James made the point, he feels responsibility to employ both his loyal workers from overseas as well now as his fellow Brits in need of jobs. But we all know there are huge challenges of employing a local workforce. But the pandemic is forcing us to all think differently about all sorts of things. So is there actually any merit in considering what a British workforce might bring longer term? I caught up with Mark Bauer, operations manager at Wheelmore, a large fresh produce grower with farms here and overseas. Mark had some thoughts on doing things differently. I look after the, the growing operations and the joint venture operations, uh, primarily in the UK, but we also have one in, in southern Spain that I'm also involved with. So the, the main UK operations are uh, an asparagus business, down at Woodbridge in Suffolk, which is a joint venture between the landowner, um, the Kerr family, and Wilmore Limited as uh, a marketeer and a veg packer. 
I then look after Herb Fresh, which is a, a wholly owned herb producing operation, surprise, surprise from the name, that is based in the home counties, primarily feeding the London produce markets and our own pack house. How many seasonal workers would you normally have in the UK in the next few months operating on, on her, uh, Wilmore Farms? So on, on our farming operations, they, they tend to, because of the geographical spread, we, we, we tend to actually not run them all quite as one. So the, the first harvest of the year is obviously asparagus, where we're starting in earnest probably this week. Temperatures have risen, crop, crop will now be very good. And the asparagus operation uses between 80 and 120 workers. We would normally have 80 permanently on the uh, or permanently uh, on the, on the payroll for the summer that would be resident with us, and we would then be going to agencies to catch up the the rest of the thing. So, and I understand that your asparagus grower has has been using um, or has been trying to use British workers recently, and that I think it was last week he trialled a number of of workers, and this week has started picking with them. Is that right? Yes, um, we. We, we use social media when we, we sort of thought that our um, our hardcore of teams weren't going to appear from Eastern Europe and fairly quickly generated a list of over 400 people that were interested in coming to assist with the asparagus harvest. Gosh, it's a lot. Yes, going from a, a, require, a requirement initially of sort of 60 to 80 people, having 400 applicants was a little bit of a culture shock. <laughs> was it surprising as well? Initially, yes, but then when you start to talk to these people about what they're anticipating and where their background is, it becomes a little bit more understanding. So we had a number of people to start with that were self-employed um, in various different disguises, builders, plumbers, electricians, cameramen, um, lots and lots of self-employed camera people, and reporters, and generally, uh, generally all walks of life. There's, there's also quite a lot from the hospi hospitality trade. Um, chefs in particular seem to be quite keen to come out and have a go. So we, we had this, this hardcore of, of what we were calling the self-employed people that obviously, with the current situation, have no or next to no income and no income security. So they, they're coming to us with the attitude that they have to earn some money and that's, you know, what they need to do. The next tranche of people really are the younger generation, which is the university and college students that have made it back from their, uh, their education establishments and, again, are thinking about what am I going to do, um, and they're interested in having a go. And then after that, we have everybody else that has come from other professions or that likes the idea of it that can't work for other reasons. And one of our challenges now is to actually try to put these together into teams because veg picking is not what it was 20 years ago. A lot of it now is actually automated or semi-automated, so it isn't one person walking up the field, carrying a basket, picking their produce. It's a team of 10 to 15 people following a self-propelled machine or a tractor and rig, and they all have to be able to work at a similar work rate and be able to get on together to make it work. 
So because of this, we're, we're having to completely rebuild the teams that we would normally have and train people in the job itself. So you have to train them in, in the health and safety. Don't stand behind a tractor when it is reversing. You will get run over. You know, people are using knives. Um, and it is as simple as this. I did some work a few years ago with a BBC reporter who actually only managed to use a knife for about an hour and a half before he managed to cut his finger quite seriously. This is all down to training. This, it's not the straightforward turn up and do the job. There is quite a lot of skill, training and understanding involved to be able to make this work. And how, how have people reacted to that then? So the, the initial trial was uh, 90 people were invited in three teams of 30. And of those 90, 67 turned up. Okay. A few, a few did actually ring up or send messages apologising that they couldn't make it. But you always get the, the people that just don't turn up. So of those 67, um, we, we went away and they were all invited to come back if they filled in the forms to give us enough details that we can actually employ them properly. And that is where we are this week. So how did they, how did they get on then? In general, very well. It, it's very difficult at the beginning of a season to try and get a, a really good estimation as to what they can do because you're working with very thin crop. So actual work rates normally in this early season would be very difficult to to establish anything sensible anyway. As much as anything, it was, do these people, you know, do they did they really understand what was required of them? And do they really feel that they can do it? And everything from so far has come back that it is very, very positive. Um, and these people are slowly starting to work for us in the next week to 10 days as we, we go into... Uh, a more mainstream run, run of harvest. So, I mean, that's that's interesting because obviously for a very, very long time now, we've obviously relied on migrant labour and farmers have always said it's very difficult to recruit local people. And if local people do come onto the farm, they often can't can't hack the, the hard work, basically, and the long hours. So do you think this change that we're going through at the moment, could it sort of change people's attitudes to working on farms or do you think it's bringing out something in people that wasn't there before i would like to think that it will open people's eyes to what it actually entails and make people actually understand what is happening a little bit more so some of the some of the first bits around it is how skilled the work is you know everybody looks at it and turns around as though you, you you pay minimum wage you're employing unskilled workers that isn't the case Many of this migrant workforce have been going back to the same farms for five, seven, ten years. Um, they take breaks from their full-time jobs in their own countries to come and pick crop in the UK because actually they can earn good money. So I think that's one of the first bits around it is the earning opportunity is there, but it is also quite a skilled job. Hours and... Uh, commitment are something else that are there uh, and I think is again quite valid our migrant workforce come here for one purpose they come here to earn money in general they don't come here to to set up home and have a life afterwards they are coming here to earn money to go home at the end of the season so actually 
as far as they're concerned, they don't want to just work 40 hours a week. They're not actually that keen on going home in the evenings if there's the opportunity to continue to earn money. And we actually have to limit their hours for their safety. So I think this is one of the, the bits behind it. You then look at their actual costs of living. In general, they will be housed on farm sites. Their aim, in most cases, is to spend as little money as they possibly can. They're paying quite heavily in national insurance and tax anyway. But they will shop locally because they have no transport. They will live on relatively simple diets and they will have relatively low costs of living. So the way the employment rules are written at the moment, agricultural workers or migrant workforce living in our caravan sites pay just under £60 a week for their accommodation. If you take that and you then say, well, actually, they're earning minimum wage, but their housing is only £57 a week, actually, their true earnings is quite considerably more and probably puts them very heavily into the skilled worker bracket. It's just the fact that they're a migrant workforce and that we only need them for such a short period of time. So given all of that, do you think that there is an opportunity to cultivate more of a British-based workforce, maybe in a different way to how the industry has tried to cultivate it before? Is it, is it perhaps more flexible working, for example? I would like to think that it is. If, with Brexit and everything else that is likely to happen on the borders, we find that there is a significant reduction in the number of or the size of our migrant workforce, and we have uh, people available in the UK, then I think we will find that, that they have to fit into that slot. I think moving back to a flexible workforce is probably very beneficial. We go back to what the migrant workforce want to do, and it's work, work, work. They do end up getting tired. Their performance probably isn't as good 10 weeks into the season as it is two weeks into the season. Actually, having people that are working four days, be it long hours or just afternoons or just mornings, is quite attractive in many ways if we can get the skills that we need. Um, the, 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 uh, the big challenge we have with that is actually the management of it. So there will be days where you need 20 people and days where you need 10 people. My experience in the past is the days when you need 20 people, you can only find 15. And the days when you only want 10 people, 20 people are ringing you wanting to work that day. Okay. But there's no reason why that can't be managed. It carries a cost. Um, and training twice as many people, again, carries a cost. But actually, that's all manageable. So, th so there is a, a potential there to work differently, perhaps. I mean, obviously, obviously the, the pandemic is something that, um, you know, it's not something that any of us have lived through on this scale in living memory. But there is still the potential for other global shocks that could disrupt, um, you know, a migrant workforce, you know, r regardless of Brexit. So do you actually think that um, the need for or the fact that we've so far relied on seasonal workforce from abroad, is that a bit of a vulnerability that we should be looking at more? 
I'm sure now, after after what is happening at the moment, it is, and it's been on the concerns of many of the big veg companies for the last 18 months with all of the concerns over Brexit. So in a lot of cases, people have been looking at the contingencies as to, to where they are. Robotics is coming through. Um, robots don't need time off. Robots don't fall sick. Um, robots don't complain when it's raining or it's stinking hot. But again, a lot of this work at the moment that, that these people are doing is quite a long way from being getting to the point where, where we can just throw technology at it to solve the problems. I think most of the forward-thinking businesses have been looking at how would we manage next year. Um, you know, There were thoughts that there would be some form of a seasonal agricultural workers scheme. But on top of the seasonal agricultural workers scheme, we're also aware that agriculture is not the only industry that relies very heavily on a migrant workforce. Hospitality does as well. Um, the hotels and the restaurant trade where, and, and the whole of the tourism trade rely on people that come to work during the summer um, and, and don't in the winter. So I think across, across the whole of society, we, we, we might be seeing this change coming towards more local people trying to fulfil these roles. It's a matter of training um, and a matter of managing to, uh, managing to continue to harvest the crop at economic values. Um, in, in very many of these crops, the cost of harvest is probably equal to, if not slightly more, the cost of growing it. So actually, if the cost of harvest goes up by very much, very quickly, these crops, you're better off leaving them in the field than you are harvesting them. Now, that doesn't work for food security. You know, food security is not just being able to grow it, it's also being able to harvest it and have the supply chain that can get it to the people, be it via the local shop or be it via a major multiple retailer. Absolutely. So I guess looking ahead across the... Uh, the, the main picking season with a potentially more British um, workforce. What are what are the key the key kind of indicators that you're going to be looking at to see whether this is something that's more viable longer term? In in every case, it's cost per kilo harvested. So we will generally pay people on on piece rate. We pay them on how much they harvest. If they don't harvest enough to meet minimum wage we have to, by law, make them up to the living wage. Um, and, you, you know, it's, it's very quick to come across it, the people that are there earning £12 an hour and the people that are uh, there earning £7 an hour. The people that earn £7 an hour through what they, they've actually achieved will have to be made up to £8.72 um, to, to get to the living wage. Um, the other people don't, and the other people actually will turn around and say, well, how is this fair that they don't work as hard as me, but you have to pay them for a pound fifty's worth or two pounds worth of crop that they haven't actually harvested? So this is, you know, wh where, we, where we look at it is the cost per kilo harvested and the quality of the product that, that, that comes out, out of the field. Um, if by going too fast, people make a poor job of harvesting factory costs, could go up dramatically. A lot of the 
the crop actually doesn't even go into a factory after it's been through the field, so it is packed in the field. Um, so this ends up on the shelf in the shop direct from the field. So, you know, you, you have to be able to make sure that everything is correctly labelled, that the food safety is managed. So there's, there's a huge amount of other bits and pieces that go on in the background after the harvesting to get it onto the shelf. Um, but the harvesting is the start of the process. And if you get it wrong right at the start of the process, it's really difficult to get it back into the right place and get the right product. Given all of that, Mark, do you do you feel like you're getting um, the support that you need from government right now? And and if not, then you know what really could make a difference. As we are at the moment, um, my Herb Fresh team um, is full. It is, you know, we we work with eighty five percent of our people have worked for us before. They're they're coming in from Eastern Europe, and they are still arriving on schedule as we anticipated. We're, we've been hugely fortunate to have got back our skilled labour. My concern is where does it go next, next year? Because we have people here that are the trainers, that are seasonal workers. So, you know, if, if we can't get them, then we are, we are going back right to the very start in terms of training, in terms of techniques, um, and in everything we're doing. So I think the message to the UK government is let's think very hard about who's going to be doing these jobs next year um, and how we actually sell the UK jobs market, how we license people coming in and how we actually sell ourselves to make sure that it's attractive enough for enough of these people to want to come because it's not only a case of us wanting them, they've got to want to come because if they don't want to come, we have exactly the same problem. And it isn't all around rates of pay. Great insight from those growers there. And a big thank you to Jez Fredenberg for that report. Now, sixth generation farmer, 17-year-old Katie Wiley, is on a mission to educate the public about where their food comes from. And it's all via her social media campaign, which is already gaining traction and support from the wider industry. Molly Leach gets a lowdown on a new initiative, Fighting for Future Farmers and finds out how Katie is hoping to make an impact. We've heard you've set up a brand new social media campaign, Fighting for Future Farmers. Can you tell us a bit more about it and why you decided to launch it? I decided to launch the campaign because I thought it would be really important to raise awareness about farmers and about how much we do for the country. So I'm a sixth-generation farmer based in the northeast of England, and I'm 17 years old, and I'm worried for my future in farming. So I thought it'd be really important to try and get the public educated on what goes on in the farm and what goes on in day-to-day life and how much we actually put into farming and how much we actually try our hardest to keep the welfare of the animals high and produce quality food for the country. How important is it that these key issues are being circulated to a wider audience? Well, I think it's really important to educate the public on farming because I think Everyone needs to know where the food comes from. So it's important to, even like down to children, sort of start there and make sure that they know where the food comes from and about getting us the fair prices. I think people need to understand the amount of work that goes into what we produce. So 
it's not just the product at the end, it's how much work that's gone into making this product that needs to be made aware to the public. And with the government listing farmers as key workers in recent weeks, do you think the launch of this project is now more important than ever for highlighting the importance of buying British and supporting our farmers? I think now in the current pandemic more than ever, we're now relying on British farmers. Imports have been reduced, if not stopped, because of, obviously we don't want to spread the virus even more. So I think it's just really important now that we appreciate the local shop. You know, even down to doorstep milk has increased by 40%. So it's really important to realise that we don't solely rely on imports. You know, we can actually be more self-sufficient, if not completely self-sufficient, for food supply. So it's just really now sort of highlighted to everyone that farming is crucial for people. You know, it's it's not just your job, it's a way of life and we'll put everything into it and I think people need to realise that. And do you hope that this campaign will really give a voice to the farmers of, of this country and help raise awareness? That's the whole reason why I set up the campaign was to sort of try and give farmers a voice. You know, I might only be 17 and a young farmer and, you know, it's not very big what I'm doing but I'm just trying to make a difference I really want to benefit not just I'm from a dairy beef and arable farm and I don't just want to benefit the dairy beef and arable I want to benefit everything across all sectors you know whether it's pigs poultry sheep everything and I just want to make sure that I can try and make a difference whether it's putting fair trade standards in place or trying to push for better prices or just raising awareness and sort of educating the public that's just sort of my main aim to try and help everyone. And have you received a lot of support when you set up the campaign? Oh, the support was unreal. To be honest, when I wrote my first article, I really didn't expect any of this. Just the support I've had off my friends from Young Farmers. I'm a member of Whitley Chapel Young Farmers in Northumberland, and my friends who I've made through that have really been really supportive and trying to push us. My family and farms around have been in touch. I've had support from the NFU, from Northumberland County Show have been in touch. A local artist, Claire Myers, is making us a logo for the campaign. So the support for the campaign has been unreal, which is just, it sort of brings spirits up a bit and thinks there's hope for the future and farming and there's hope that there's people behind here and, you know, we really want to help. Brilliant stuff and well done, Katie. And we wish you all the luck in future with your new campaign. That's it for this week, but make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform to keep notified of all the new episodes of Over the Farm Gate. From us at Farmers Guardian and the team at the CLA, thank you for listening and we hope you stay safe and well. Goodbye for now.